0: We'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for August 17th, 2008. And today we'll be continuing our study on the King James Bible and the other modern day versions, the comparison of this. And last week we left off with some Bible verses comparing the King James to a lot of the other different versions out there. I'm going to go ahead and continue that study with some more of these verses if we go to Isaiah fourteen twelve, Isaiah fourteen twelve, it says in the King James, "How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down, which didst weaken the nations?" Now Revelation twenty two sixteen tells us that Jesus Christ is the morning star. Okay, this is in this is in um, the King James Bible. The King James Bible never gives this title to anyone else. However, in some of the new versions, Jesus Christ and Satan are actually considered the same thing. Because some versions have taken the liberty to call Satan the morning star in Isaiah 14.12. Now, you talk about God is not the author of confusion. Well, this is a great verse where somebody could be reading the Bible and start to think, Hey, is, who are we talking about here? I mean, Isaiah 14 is considered the biography of Lucifer. If you have an NIV reference Bible, or, or one of these reference Bibles, many times it will actually take you right to Revelation 22.6, where, the um, uh, where they talk about the morning star, the bright morning star. And you could start to think Lucifer and Jesus Christ are the same thing. In the NIV, it is actually referred to as morning star. It says, how to fallen from heaven a Lucifer, morning star... So you can see how that would really throw a monkey wrench into things if you were reading that. And there's been a lot of people that have got off track because of that. Uh, The NASB calls, instead of sun of the morning, which is what it should be, it says star of the morning. The NRSV says day star, which is another word for, for Jesus as well. So now we've got two different versions, the NIV and the NRSV, which you could get totally confused with. The NAB refers to um, Lucifer as morning star in Isaiah 14.12 again. The REB refers to Lucifer as bright morning star. So this is really serious stuff we're talking about here. You're, You're equating Lucifer with Jesus Christ. Daniel 3.25 says, He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. This is the whole story uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fire. He said, And lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the fourth, the form of the fourth, is like the Son of God. Okay, that's the that's the King James. Is like the Son of God. Capital S, Son of, capital G, God. This is an, is an excellent Old Testament verse which shows that Jesus Christ existed long before he was born in Bethlehem. Naturally, the new versions will pervert it with pagan foolishness. The NIV refers to this last part of the verse where it says, "And the fourth is the form of the fourth is like the Son of God." Okay, it says in the NIV, "A Son of the Gods," and nothing's capitalized in this particular verse. NASB says the same thing, "A Son of the Gods." NRSV says, "A God," not a capital G lB the Living Bible, they all say, A God. N-W-T says, A Son of the Gods. That's New World Translation. Uh, so, again, God is not the author of confusion, and um, the King James is the only one that gets it right, out of all these other versions that we just read. Colossians 1.14 says, regarding Jesus, Christ, in whom we have redemption, through His blood even the forgiveness of sins. So that's a pretty important verse. That's how we have redemption. That's how we are redeemed, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is also how we'll overcome. We overcome through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and we love our lives not under the death. That's what Revelation says regarding to the tribulation saints. So in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. See, His blood covers our sin debt like the Bible talks about, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. The blood of Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin debt. Now, Satan hates the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that blood is missing in the modern translations. Now, Colossians one fourteen again in the King James, says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The NIV says just... Res- says redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It totally leaves out through His blood. And so does the NASB, the NRSV. They all do the same thing. They leave out through His blood. The REB says our release is secured and sins are forgiven. How are they forgiven? How are they atoned for? How are they redeemed? How, what is the propitiation? No, we don't know. Because it takes it out. Takes the blood out totally. Every single one of these versions take the blood out totally. The NWT, New World Translations, we have released by ransom the forgiveness of sins. NAB says redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So, again, we have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ removed. Remember, a little leaven, or bad doctrine, leaveneth the whole lump. That's what we're talking about today. Acts 8.37 And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This verse is very important because it places definite conditions upon water baptism. One first must believe on Christ. Well, a lot of, you know, pseudo-Christian religions, you know, would say, well, that's just part of the salvation process. You've got to be you you baptized, you got to do your good works, you got to keep the seven sacraments, or whatever. Okay, But this verse is very important because it places a definite condition upon water baptism. When first must believe on Christ, many modern versions throw the entire verse out of the Bible. Well, what do you mean? The, the verse isn't there? Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. The NIV throws the entire verse out. So here's what happens, and you can check this out. Go to Acts 37... In an NIV. It won't be there. You'll see Acts 8.36, and then it'll be Acts 8.38. Now, most of the time, you're not looking at the verse numbers on the side, so you don't even notice it. But, if you notice, there's no Acts 8.37. It's gone. Or maybe they'll have a little footnote at the bottom. It's not included in the most ancient transcripts or something. They're playing God there. Yea, hath God said. Type of uh, thing. The So, this verse, which... Obviously is incredibly important, so you don't get mixed up on thinking that works are what gets you to heaven. Well, I can just be baptized and, you know, there's an order. Believe on the Son, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then, you get baptized, okay? The NIV omits the entire verse. So does the RSV, the REB, the the w, NWT, and NAB. So, now, in the NAB, it says it omits the entire ber- verse, but renumbers the verse, so you won't miss it. So, evidently, they probably just subtracted totally out of so you'll never even know on that one. Well, that was nice of them. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, for, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Isn't that what all these other versions are doing? You would think they really wouldn't want to attack this verse. Because that's what they're doing in the New Translations. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. You can imagine how this verse must be a thorn in the flesh to the modern translators who are busy corrupting the word of God, day and night. So do they repent of their sins and get right with God? No, of course not. They changed the word corrupt to pedal <laughs> Pedal. So they would say in the NIV, for we are not as many which peddle the word of God. The word corrupt and peddle are two totally different things. Peddling like, I'm peddling like, uh, not like peddling a bike, but peddling your wares. Your, your, if you're trying to sell something, peddling something, trying to sell it. Not necessarily corrupting it. Just because you peddle something doesn't mean you've corrupted it. So again, God is not the author of confusion. They have corrupted the word of God. And this is the very verse they want to attack. And to water it down so that it doesn't convict them of their own sin. The NASB says peddling. The NRSV says peddlers. The Living Bible says hucksters. It's one of my favorites, hucksters. I mean, they cuss on the Living Bible. I used to have one. I was like, man. The NWT, peddlers. And the New King James, peddling. It's, just, it's insane. So much of what we're talking about. But yet... The for the most part, the preachers just pretty much overlook this stuff and, and really don't take a stand on it for the most part. I'm, I'm talking the average, everyday, pseudo-Christian preacher. The next section, there's just a little section on the New Scofield Reference Bible. Another counterfeit KJV is the New Scofield Reference Bible. The King James Version is clearly printed on the cover, but since but, but since when has it been safe to book judge a book by its cover? Please note the following. The 1909 and 1917 editions of the Schofield Reference Bible do not change the text of the KJV. Now, I'm not saying to go and buy one, okay? I'm just saying at least it's a King James Bible. When you get into all these footnotes and a lot of other things, you can run into trouble. Particularly, Schofield, there are some serious problems with this. And I'd have to do a whole other study on that to go down that rabbit trail. But when you get into a lot of these... You know, reference Bibles and that particular thing. So much of what you're going to get in the footnotes is a lot of times on biblical opinion. Not saying every time, but you just got to be very careful. Now, the new Scofield Reference Bible, not the old Scofield Reference Bible, actually does change the text of the King James Bible. This is the uh, New Scofield Reference Bible of 1967. This Bible refers to baptism as a sacrament. And takes the liberty to do so in Acts in, in an Acts eight footnote. The NRSB also changes the King James with better readings in over sixty five hundred places. So see, this is a very subtle thing because you, you're you're getting it, and you think you're getting a King James reference Bible, a New Scofield. Hey, what's not the like? Just like that Dake's Bible. That's another one you gotta you gotta be very very careful. Don't get it you know the the probably the the purest word of god that i know of is the cambridge is the cambridge king james bible okay now dr wait does sell uh, on his website i believe it's biblefortoday.org org. i'm pretty much referring everybody to dr Waite when it comes to king james issues he, he's been doing this for like 60 years and uh, his website sells a uh, a Bible, a King James Bible, that does define the archaic words. Now, it's not, you're not getting all the, the commentaries and, and a lot of unbiblical footnotes and things of that nature. But it does help you to define the um, archaic or words that aren't used as much today in order to help you understand it. Okay, So he's got Bibles there that are ca- Cambridge Bibles that have the archaic words defined on the pages when you're reading them. So it has a built-in Bible Dictionary, right there. So, he does offer that, and that's pretty much the Bible I'm recommending. Or or just a straight Cambridge Bible. I'm not going to be recommending Thomas Nelson Publishing, because of the information we talked about last week, and Zondervan. You know, I have to believe that if you buy, let's say if you did buy a King James Bible from Zonderfan, what what spirit are you getting with that publishing company? I mean, hey... They're yoked up with HarperCollins Publishing, which publishes the Satanic Bible. Rupert Murdoch essentially owns Zondervan, one of the most evil men on the planet. So even the published co- publishing company, to me, even if it's a King James Bible, who's publishing it? What are their motives? Is it filthy lucre or mammon? And again, I'm not saying that, that if you have a King James from those companies, throw it out. Okay, I'm not saying that, but... Any future Bibles that I would ever purchase would not be from those particular companies, just as a matter of principle. And I don't know what spiritual baggage may come with the Bible. I know there's spiritual baggage with these false versions. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later. Now, let's talk about the various editions of the 1611 authorized version. If someone decides to produce a new Bible version, they must also convince Christians that there is a need and a justifiable cause for the new version. One of the deceitful excuses being used today for producing new versions is that the the King James Bible has been revised several times since 1611, and that a new revision is once again needed. Now, I want to cover all the objections, too. I don't want to just enter my case for the King James. I want to look at, okay, what are some of the things that other people will say so that you can arm yourself and be able to defend against these types of attacks. While spreading this piece of deceitful misinformation, the King James uh, Version critics hold their breath, hoping that no one will be intelligent enough to ask for specific details about these revisions. The many new translations that have occurred since 1881 of the revised version of Westcott and Hort bear no resemblance to the various editions of the KJV prior to 1881. The modern revisers are just trying to justify their sins. There were four actual editions of the King James Bible produced after 1611. The 1629, the 1638, the 1762, and the 1769. These were not translations like the new versions, like the new perversion since 1881 on Westcott and Hort. They weren't really even revisions. The 1629 edition of the King James Bible was simply an effort to correct printing errors, the two and two of the of the original King James translators translators assisted in this work. The sixteen thirty eight edition of the King James Bible also dealt with printing errors, especially words and clauses overlooked by the printers. About seventy two percent of the textual corrections in the KJV were done by sixteen thirty eight, only twenty seven years after the first printing. Please bear in mind the fact that printing was a very laborious task prior to the 1800s. It's not like it was today, where, you know, we have this printer and they can just put out this... We have computers today, typesetting, all these things that they didn't have back then, or near the technology. Publishing a flawless work was almost impossible... During this time period, even today with computers and advanced word processors, printing errors are still frequently made. Imagine what it was like in the 1600s. Then, in 1762 and in 1769, the final two editions of the KJV were published. Both of these involved spelling changes, which became necessary as the English language became more stabilized and spelling rules were established. So, technically speaking, if you have a King James Bible today, it is a 1611 authorized version, but it's actually a 1769 edition. Okay, if you want to get real technical. Because I had some people come up to me early on when I was kind of a baby Christian in the King James thing. Well, what, what year is your Bible, boy? Well, it's 1611, oh, you better check yourself. 1769. And they were doing it because they were trying to attack the King James, and they were doing it to try to make me look like a fool because I didn't know the actual edition of the King James Bible that I had. Okay, so this is a very common tactic. I'm just kind of warning you ahead of time if you've never and, and again, people that are more learning will in, in the KJV attack will try to bring this stuff up. There were no new translations, and there were really no new revisions published in 1629, 1638, 1762, or 1769. These were simply editions of the 1611 KJV, which corrected printing errors and spelling errors. Those who try to equate these editions with the modern translations are just being deceitful, or they're uninformed, or both. The many other so-called revisions of the KJV that occurred on the dates that we just mentioned, are nothing more than running changes and touch-up work at the printers. The real revisions and translations do not start appearing in regard to the other line of Bibles until 1881, the revised version, and 1901 of the ASAS, ASV. Now, the 1881 revised version of Westcott and Hort. So, if someone walks up with a smirky grin on his face and asks you, which King James Bible do you have? The 1611, the 1629, the 1638, the 1762, or the 1769. You can simply state that you have a 1769 edition of the King James 1611 authorized version. Now, I know that's a little bit of a mouthful, but it is important to know things like this. If you're going to uh, earnestly contend for the faith and defend the word of God, well, these are things that will come in handy and useful. Now, we're going to talk about why the King James translators did not accept the Apocrypha as Scripture. Another favorite lie of the critics is that the original KJV of 1611 included the Apocrypha, which no true Christian today would accept as Scripture. I mean, the Catholics would, but not the, the true Christian. The Apocrypha is a collection of several pagan writings, which the Catholic Church accepts as inspired Scripture. In fact, the Council of Trent in 1546 pronounced a curse upon anyone who denied that these books were inspired. So if you have the Catholics saying this, you got to really take a, a extra hard look at it. The King James translators did not consider the books to be inspired scripture, nor did they include them in the canon as such. They merely placed the Apocryphal books between the Old and New Testament as a historical document, not a scripture. Their reasons for not accepting the Apocrypha as scripture are listed on pages 185 and 186 of the book called Translators Revised by Alexander McClure. The seven reasons are basically as follows. 1. Not one of them is in the Hebrew language like the rest of the Old Testament books. 2. Not one of the writers lays any claim to inspiration. 3. The books were never acknowledged as sacred scriptures by the Jewish Church, and therefore were never sanctioned by our Lord, Four, they were not allowed a place among the sacred books during the first four centuries of the Christian church. Five, they contained fabulous statements and statements which contradict not only canonical scripture, but themselves. For example, in the book of Maccabees alone, Antioch Epipheus dies three times in three places. <laughs> that's kind of that's tough to do. Six, it supports doctrines at variance with the Bible, such as prayers for the dead and sinless perfection. Well, you can see why the Catholics, you know, wanted to have it in there. Seven, it teaches immoral practices such as lying, suicide, assassination, and magical incantations. So, let's go further. What about these supposed errors in the King James Bible? Critics of the King James Bible have a nasty habit of pointing out what they believe to be errors, contradictions and mistranslations in the authorized version. The sad fact is they usually point these things out to young men and women in Christian colleges who do not know any better. Uh, Many of them are the actual seminary professors or cemetery professors that are sanctioned to brainwash them and ruin their faith while they're in the seminaries. Now, If a seminary education is the foundation of a pastor's faith, and he gets a bad education, and he gets an education where he's taught to doubt the Word of God, which is the King James Bible, and to say, well, these other versions are actually more accurate, they're better, and we always need to go back to the Hebrew and the Greek, in bad Hebrew and Greek to, to boot, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So if you have a bad education in the seminary, do you think that's going to carry over to your ministry for the rest of your life? And how it's going to affect... See, I, I thank God I never went to seminary. Because I see them doing way more harm than good anymore. I mean, if what they were doing was really working... Why is America in the state that it's in? Why is there so much apostate? Why are the churches yoked up with the government through their 501c3 status? They're corporate entities. Why don't they take a stance on the Word of God? Why is there so much world that's in the churches? If they were doing their jobs, that shouldn't be so. But it is. And the Bible clearly predicted it was going to be that way, so it shouldn't be of any surprise to us. Many young Christians, including young preachers, are having their faith in God's word destroyed by the very people they look to for spiritual guidance. Isn't that sad? Having their faith in God's word destroyed by the very people they look to for spiritual guidance. If the blind lead at the blind, they'll both fall in a ditch. Woe be unto the pastors that scatter the sheep. They're not feeding the flock. They're scattering the sheep. They're causing them to doubt the word of God. And, again, the word of God is the foundation of our faith. These so-called errors are then presented by such infidels, presented by such infidels, have been explained and written about so many times that it's a shame to even have to mention it again. There isn't enough space in a booklet of this size to embark upon a lengthy rebuttal of such claims. Besides, it has already been done quite well by others. Nevertheless, for the sake of showing the reader the nature of the so-called heirs in the authorized version, we will take time to briefly deal with just a few. Now, I've done a whole study on this particular one. According to the critics, the word Easter in Acts 12.4 is a mistranslation. Because the Greek word is Pascha and is translated Passover 28 times in the New Testament, therefore, they say it should be translated likewise in Acts 12.4. This is not this is what happens when a man is so hung up on the Greek that he can't read plain English. It should not be translated passover because passover had already passed. The days of unleavened bread had already begun according to verse 3, which means that passover was over, according to numbers 28:16 through 18 and Exodus 12:13 through 18. The passover was always the 14th day of the first month, while the days of unleavened bread ran from the 15th through the 21st. Herod could not have been waiting for Passover. Besides, why would a Gentile king like Herod be concerned about a Jewish feast day? Easter is from the pagan Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar, that the pagans worship, including Rome. Herod wanted to wait until his pagan holiday was over before bringing Peter out to the people. So it was translated correctly there. And and again, this is, you know, this is a major thing. What's another example? 1 John 5.7, also a subject of much debate. It is argued that the verse lacks manuscript evidence and does not belong in the Bible. Being one of the greatest verses in the Bible on the Trinity, we should be suspicious of any oppositions to it. The verse should not be omitted from the Bible. It is found in the Greek, Greek manuscript 61, which probably forced Erasmus to include it in his third edition of Greek, of the 1522, 1 John 5.7. It's also found in Codex Ravenius and in the margins of 88 and 629. It is also found in old Latin manuscripts R and Speculum. It was quoted by Cyprian around AD 250 and two Spanish bishops quoted it in the 4th century. Several African writers quoted it in the 5th century and Cassiodorus quotes it in the 5th century, in the 6th century in Italy. The fact that this Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus do not include the verse, means nothing to a true Bible believer. After all, the Vaticanus omits the entire book of Revelation while keeping the Apocrypha. Many argue that the KJV is an error, which is with its use of the word devils instead of demons. Again, this is due to the overemphasis on the Greek as well as a lack of faith in God's ability to preserve his words in the English. While protesting that Damion should be translated demon, many have overlooked a great truth which the Holy Spirit has preserved in the king's English. There is one true um, capital son of God, but many sons, not capital, sons of God. There is one true church, the Bride of Christ, but many local churches. Likewise, there is one devil, capital D, but many devils under his control. The word "demon" itself does not necessarily imply an evil spirit. Even Webster's 1828 dictionary, which is the gold standard for defining words in the King James Bible, the Webster's 1828 states that the ancients believed that there were good and evil demons. Now, there is no such thing as a good and evil demon. Okay, these are what the pagans believe. But again, you can get somebody messed up on given words, particularly if they don't have a background in understanding what those words mean. The New Agers of today believe likewise. Therefore, God led the KJV translators to translate devils instead of demons because every daemon in the Bible is an evil spirit. Daemon meaning from the Greek. The word devil makes that very clear. Every devil in the Bible is under the authority of their father, the Devil. Capital D. And again, this just make these are, these are examples of where the King James Bible is actually clearer. We have contradictions. Then we have supposed contradictions like Exodus twenty four ten, John one eight. Exodus says that the Israelites saw God, while Jesus said in John that no man has seen God at any time. This is a contradiction, right? No, it's only a matter of rightly dividing the word of truth, which is what Second Timothy two fifteen tells us to do. God is a Trinity, just like you and I, body, soul, and spirit, the Israelites saw a physical manifestation of God, but not the soul of God, just as no one has seen your soul. Uh, another one, Numbers 25.9 says that 24,000 people died in the plague, but 1 Corinthians 10.8 says that only 23,000 died. Read in 1 Corinthians 10.8. So if we read 1 Corinthians 10.8, we'll notice that 23,000 fell in one day. Okay, whereas Numbers twenty five, nine says 24,000. But the 24,000 died altogether within the few-day period, but 23 died the first day, okay? So in other words, um, if you had a plague, everybody's not going to die in the first day, most likely. You're going to have, you know, some people dying after that. So it's not a contradiction. You see, these are the kinds of heirs that are supposedly... The quote heirs that are supposedly in the King James Bible these are the reasons given for you to throw away your Bible and buy a new one don't fall for it I have always learned to give God the benefit of the doubt and to count the critics guilty until proven innocent now I have a whole Bible uh, I think it's called scriptural discrepancies in the King James, or a whole book on it that goes through every single discrepancy supposed discrepancy and explains it biblically there's biblical explanations you know the people that have the far greater burden on them are the ones that have these new perversions. I mean, we've already talked about some of the contradictions, some of the things that they've left out. They have far—they have a far greater burden on them than we ever would. But see, what they want to do is they want to come out and attack whatever little scraps they can muster on the King James so that they can justify their own position. When they themselves, and it's, it's like the Bible talks about that, you know, uh, you know, judge not lest ye be judged. When you have a beam in your own eye and you're judging the speck in your brothers. That's when you don't judge, okay? That's not judging righteous judgment. These people have a beam, and it's called the modern perversions, in their own eye. And they're trying to judge the speck in the King James. And I'm not even going to give the King James a speck. I'm going to say it's God-preserved word. But it's, it's, a, it's a good analogy, I think. And again, if they've had seminary training, they've had a lot of training on how to attack the King James Bible. I mean, isn't that sad? In the final section, I'd like to point out one of the best things about the New Versions. What might that be? It is the fact that we know that they're going to alter God's Word before they they do it. We know how to check them out without having to waste our God-given time reading the whole translation. The following list includes... Uh, some checkpoints, which anyone can use to expose a new translation. No translation will be guilty on all accounts, but any translation since 1881 will alter God's word enough to prove that the revisionists do not have God's best interest at heart. For emphasis, I'll present these items from Satan's standpoint, briefly illustrating his purpose for many of the changes. So, these little illustrations I'm going to give you are presented from Satan's standpoint, so bear that in mind as I read them. This is Satan. Essentially talking. Isaiah 7.14 Let's attack the virgin birth by omitting the word virgin. After all, the Hebrew word Alma can mean virgin, a damsel, or a young woman. Laodicean Christians are too lazy to check out Matthew one twenty three to see how Matthew translated it. So, again, in Isaiah 14, by leaving out um, the word virgin, we can attack the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now again, this is from Satan's standpoint. Daniel 3:25. There's uh, which is uh, essentially a type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, we can't have that. Someone else might get the idea that he is eternal. Change the son of God to the sons of God. Now, we've already went over that verse where, you know, I saw one is a son of God walking in the fire, okay? So they changed the son of God, capital S, capital G to the son, son of the gods, little s, little g. Matthew 6.13, omit the kingdom, the word kingdom and the power and the glory. Just omit all those words. That's what they do in a lot of the modern versions. Now again, would this benefit Satan or is it going to benefit God? You have to ask yourself that question. Is it, is it benefiting God that we're removing from his word? We're perverting his word? We're perverting the words of the living God? I don't think so. It's helping Satan. Matthew 27.54 says, uh, from Satan's standpoint, change the Son of God, capital S, capital G, to a Son of God, little s. Okay. Again, what we're doing is we're de-deifying Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're bringing him down through these, these other versions. Mark one one. This is the only gospel which refers to Christ as the as the son of God, capital S, capital G, in the very first verse. Just throw it just throw it out, just throw out the whole son of God. Mark 16:9 through 20. Either throw out the last 12 verses of Mark or raise doubt about them in the margins and the footnotes. This is what a lot of the ver- these perversions do. They throw out the last 12 verses of Mark or they raise doubt about them in the margins of the footnotes. That's why you got to be so careful with the reference Bibles. Because so many of them, when writing the mar, writing the notes in the footnotes, are they themselves seminary brainwashed, and tainted, and leavened. That's why the Bible says, you know, Cursed be the man that trusted the man, and that make of flesh his arm, and his heart departed from the Lord. I mean, if you have a Bible, and you're reading it, and it says a better rendering, or the oldest manuscripts read, these types of things. What is that going to do? Is that going to strengthen your faith? No, it's going to destroy your faith in the Word of God. And the Word of God is the foundation of our faith. So you got to you have to decide, you know, who are you going to believe? The Word of God, if you have a King James Bible, or some man saying thus and this and that about a verse as though he... Is qualified to change and alter the Word of God. He's not earnestly contending for the faith. He's actually trying to destroy your faith. It may be in a very subtle way, but that's the outcome most of the time. Luke 134, from Satan's standpoint, change Mary's words, I know not a man, to I have no husband. This will allow for possible fornication between Mary and Joseph. Isn't that slick? Because when she says, I know not a man, she's never had sexual relations with anyone. But if she says, I have no husband, that could allow for the possible fornication between Mary and Joseph. Which could make Joseph the, quote, father of Jesus. How And that's how he's referred to him in a lot of these false translations. We covered that last week. They refer to Joseph as the father of Jesus Christ. Now that's blasphemy of the highest order. Luke 2.33, attack the virgin birth again by replacing Joseph with the word Father, Father of Jesus Christ. So that's the that's the end of that little packet uh, that we started there. I'm going to continue this um, with a little booklet called The Westcott and Horde Only Controversy, and it talks a lot more about that. But this is by Dr. Phil Stringer, who I've heard preach on many occasions. Uh, excellent knack for making sometimes complicated Bible subjects uh presenting them in a very uh, easy to understand manner he ha- he has just a really awesome knack for that um and he has some writings that are that are uh again help to make sense out of these things he has quite a few little booklets about these types of subjects he's, he's a staunch king james defender and um he starts out in this book and it says he, he says, you don't have to read very much in contemporary fundamentalist Baptist literature to come across warnings about the King James-only controversy. Now, Dr. Stringer is a what you would be considered an independent fundamental King James-only Baptist, which is pretty much the last, I guess, denomination that I would say I came from. I believe in many of the tenets there, but I also saw a lot of problems within that church and, as well. Uh, and again, most of them are, are incorporated, corporations of the government. And a lot of them anymore don't even take a stance on the King James Bible. So I just tend to call myself a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, in, instead of putting the denominational label on myself. He goes on to say, Dr. Jerry Falwell announces that he, that he is hiring Dr. Harold Rawlings to refute the King James-only cultic movement that is so damaging so many good churches today. Now, I think that it is possible to carry this whole King James only thing too far by saying that we don't ever, 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 that the underlying Greek and Hebrew aren't even ever worthy of mentioning or merit or anything. But see, that's what they derived the King James from, from the majority text, the textus receptus, the Masoretic Hebrew text in the Old Testament. Now, I don't go that far. So when you say King James only, I don't put myself in that extreme camp like you would have with somebody like Dr. Ruckman, who really discredits himself because of the way, the hate, <laughs> that pretty much spews forth from so much of his writings, and I've read enough of his writings to know that that you know he has a lot of anger uh, issues in regard to this. And I understand, yes, we, we should be angry and sin not, um, but I think he carries it a little bit too far there. Yet Doug just brought up a good point that I, I probably should elaborate on a little bit further. There is a... There's a lot of infighting within the King James defenders. Okay, the people that are on the opposite, far far end of the spectrum would be considered King James only defenders, and they would believe or or, or teach that many times, sometimes they would go so far as to almost say that the that the underlying Greek and Hebrew of the King James needed to be wasn't inspired, needed to be improved upon, these types of things. That's why the King James Bible, and I'm not going to go that far as to say the underlying Greek and Hebrew of the King James weren't as equally inspired as the King James. Okay, This is, again, one of the reasons why I refer, because, again, if the foundations be destroyed, what was the foundation of the King James? Well, the underlying Greek and Hebrew, obviously. So, these types of things, um, when you have that dynamic going on, this is the reason that I refer to uh, Dr. D.A. Waite, because I I believe he has the best, most biblically balanced approach to this particular thing, and again, he's been a scholar on this particular issue for about sixty years, so he's far more qualified than myself. And he's got a website up on um, Sermon Audio, so um, you can do a keyword search, Doctor D. A. Wait W. A. I. T. E. If you want to know more, he'll load your boat. He's got over a thousand teachings and sermons. He's a pastor. As well, he has his own home church, King James Only. Um, uh, all I can say is I love the man. He's he's uh, he's a wonderful person. He's humble. He's the one I refer to anymore for this particular subject. He's got all kinds of resources on his website. You can do keyword searches on his um, on his little search box on his homepage, just like mine. Everybody on Sermon Audio has a little keyword search home. Uh, box on their home page and you can do whatever you want to search for King James new King James will you NIV whatever you want you just type it right into the search box you know he'll load your boat he, he I mean again far more qualified than myself on, on this particular issue I'm just trying to do a, a condensed version of this uh, to help my readers or, or my listeners to make sense of this particular situation so going back to this little booklet, Dr. Jerry Falwell announces that he is hiring Dr. Harold Rawlings to refute the King James-only cultic movement that is damaging so many good churches today. Oh yeah, they're, it's really damaging the, the, the churches. Really damaging. I mean, you look at this Laodicean, lukewarm church, and, and is as though they have the answer. Obviously what they're doing is not working. Dr. Robert Sumner warns about the veritable fountain of misinformation and deceptive double talk on the subject of King James onlyism. Dr. D- J.B. Williams refers to those who advocate the King James only as misinformers and as a cancerous sore. Well, you're going to eat those words someday. I-, I hope for your sake it's at the judgment seat of Christ and not the great white throne judgment. I don't understand, I I don't know, this is just hard for me to understand. God showed me this at some point in my Christian walk, how important this was. This was a turning point in my Christian life, when I finally got a hold of this truth. I don't understand how somebody can just be a pastor for, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and never get a hold of this. If the Holy Spirit lives inside them, why isn't the Holy Spirit leading them toward truth? I'm not saying they're not saved, I'm just saying I don't understand it personally. Dr. Robert Joyner calls King James Bible loyalists heretics. Well, I would call him a heretic. Dr. James R. White warns about the King James Bible proponents, quote, undercutting the very foundations of the faith itself. What a lie from the pit of hell. They're doing the very thing they're accusing the King James-only people of. They're doing the very thing. Or the people that adhere to the King James. I don't like to put myself in what we call the King James only camp because many times that's under the connotation that we've pretty much done away with the underlying Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. We, we've, we've done away with that. okay. And again, this is why I refer to Dr. D.A. Wade because he has a balance. A biblical balance. Which is what I think we need to strive for. The problem is if somebody gets off on some pet doctrine and they start thinking that they're smarter than God and then... Heresies enter in, pride enters in, and when pride comes in, then the deception comes in, their eyes become blinded to the truth. And they start thinking that they're smarter than everyone else. Yeah, Doug just brought up a good point. I mean, if we go that far, then, then we could we could go so far as to say, well, whenever Jesus Christ or the apostles quoted scripture, that, you know, it must have been a false Bible because it wasn't a KJV. We're not going to go there, in other words. That, that, that's, I mean, if you think about it in those terms, that's just crazy. So again, I, I think we need to have biblical balance in regard to this particular issue. Such references to the King James-only controversy are very common. Some refer to loyal supporters of the King James Bible as the King James-only cult. Another common term is the sneering reference to King Jimmy boys. I've never, I've never heard that one. King Jimmy boys? I can just hear that rolling off some sarcastic guy's tongue. However, the use of the King James Bible only wasn't always so controversial. God was doing a great work in England in the early 1600s. The preaching of the Gospel of Christ out of the Matthews Bible and the Geneva Bible was leading to multitudes of conversions. Evangelicals and Puritans were becoming a stronger and stronger force in the Church of England and in English culture. I really don't like the term evangelicals, but... Uh, Anyway, yet many were concerned that the final translation work into the English language had not been done. King James was persuaded to authorize a new translation. King James Bible was printed in 1611. At first there were no questions and concerns about this new Bible translation. Oh, At first there were questions. This was as it should be. No one should accept the Bible translation lightly. By 1640, however, the King James Bible was clearly the Bible of the English people. The Geneva and the Matthews Bible, which were once greatly used of God, went out of print. So that kind of tells you something. There was simply no demand for them anymore. The Church of England, with its official uh, evangelical doctrinal statement, used the King James Bible exclusively. It was the Bible of the Puritans, both inside and outside the Church of England. In fact, the Puritans began to use distinctive biblical English in the King James Bible in their day-to-day speech. Not to say that everything the Puritans did was perfect. Okay, but again, these are just this is we're documenting historical things that happened here. The King James Bible was the Bible of the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. It was clearly the Bible of the Baptists. By sixteen forty it was the Bible of the pilgrims. Some had used the, the Geneva Bible earlier in regard to the pilgrims. The King James Bible was the Bible of the evangelicals in England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. It became the Bible of the English colonies across the Atlantic Ocean, the only religious group of of any size or importance in England that did not use the King James Bible was Roman Catholicism. So see, there wasn't really much of a debate about it back then. All non-Catholics could have been referred to as King James only people, in other words. So, all non-Catholics. See, back then, there really wouldn't have been a debate if you were a non-Catholic, if you were a Christian. There really wouldn't have been a debate about which Bible to use, it was obvious. And are we better than they? Are we, are we more of a pure culture than they were back then? I mean, we're in, the, we're in the, the, the greatest falling away the world's ever known right now. We're right in the midst of it. We're in the lukewarm, vomit Laodicean church era. Are we better than that? We, we have more discernment. Well, we think we do. When the Methodist revival stirred England in the 1700s, it did so with the preaching of the King James Bible. John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodists, made his own translation of the New Testament. However, it found little acceptance, even among Methodists. Only the King James Bible was used commonly. I don't understand how somebody could come out and say, Oh, I'm going to just have my own version. And that's scary stuff. I mean, when you look at the Bible, and you see all the warnings about removing or adding to the Word of God, I mean, that's not something I would want to mess with. When the English colonies flourished in Australia and New Zealand, the King James Bible was the common Bible of the settlers. Over 150 English translations were produced between 1611 and 1880. However, they found no audience except in a few cults. Most went out of print quickly. See, Satan was trying everything in the world, even back then, to get out new versions and translations. But they found no audience except in a few cults. Most went out of quick. Uh, print quickly, the English-speaking Christian world was truly a King James-only world. So see, again, back then there would have been no debate on this. We, we want to look back, okay, what was the foundations of the King James Bible? Because if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Foundations, to me, look pretty solid so far. So in other words, if we were to go back 100, 130 plus years, there would have really been no debate on the KJV issue. But now amidst the greatest apostasy that the world has ever known, the King James Bible has been vilified. Great falling away. If, if, as Jesus would say, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. That's the time we're living in. One of the main ways the elect have been deceived is through their Bibles. Embracing false translations, which opens you up to all other kind of Deception. As hard as it may be for the liberals and secularists to admit, the American public schools were built around the King James Bible. Even the American public schools were, at the time. The Oxford Companion to the Supreme Court of the United States, which is not exactly a religious right publication, describes the early public schools in this way. Quote, Public schools had a distinctively Protestant flavor. With teachers leading prayers and scripture reading from the King James Bible... In their lessons. This was in public schools. Can you imagine that today? Oh, no, no. We've removed all that from public schools. Now we give out condoms. And we encourage birth control and abortions. And we teach evolution. We've taken prayer out of schools. Legalized abortion. And, 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 oh, there's no hint of any Bible. Again, does this sound like more of a godly time than we're living in today? The Roman Catholic minority objected to the King James Bible, so they developed their own school system. With the exception of the Catholics, the United States was clearly King James only. So, in other words, then that last sense, the Roman Catholic minority objected to the King James Bible. So, we know who is at the head of the Roman Catholic Church. We have Satan at the head. The largest pseudo Christian cult on the planet, the, the cult that is responsible for the blood of millions upon millions of martyrs. Many refer to it as the Great Whore of Revelation. I think that's more of an amalgamation of all the religions, but I think it's going to be at the central hub of it, yes. We have the largest pseudo Christian cult on the planet, and guess what? What they hated the King James Bible. Well, there was an old preacher uh, that I used to know, and he said, whatever whatever side Satan is on, mark me down on the opposite side. So you have to look at it that way, too. If 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 Satan is against it, well, then I have to look at, okay, why is he against it? Russell Kirk, a Roman Catholic historian, describes the influence of the King James Bible on the United States. He says, quote, the book that was it was to exert a stronger influence than any other in the Americas was not published until 1611, a few years after the first Virginian settlement. The King James transla- translation of the Bible, the Authorized Version, was prepared by English scholars for King James I. Read from the American, read from the American pulpits and the great majority of American households during colonial times. The Authorized Version shaped the style, informed the intellect, affected the laws, and decreed the morals of the North American colonies. End of quote. And that was a Catholic historian. What are you going to say? He's biased? (laughs) He actually just said something that was a historical fact, and he didn't even try to present it in a negative way, really. I don't know what he said before and after, but in that quote he didn't. So truly, the early United States was King James Was the King James Bible only place? According to Winston Churchill, 90 million copies of the King James Bible had been printed by the mid 20th century. The King James Bible was the Bible of the great modern missions movement of the 1700s and 1800s. The missions from England and the United States were saved, called to the mission field, and trained under the preaching of the King James Bible. Now, again, compare everything that I'm saying to today, there is no comparison. We have. To, what do we have today? Leaven, hypocrisy, apostasy, lies, deceit, treachery, calling evil good and good evil. And the Bible says, "Woe to them that call evil good and good evil." A falling away, a strong delusion, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their consciences seared with a hot iron. Evil men and seducers, waxing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. These are all different Bible uh, verses I'm quoting. That's what we have today. But I guess we're better than they. We're we're, we're better than those old, original King James people. And I say that, you know, tongue-in-cheek. So these missionaries traveled around the world, introducing the gospel of grace to millions. Many of these missionaries knew little or no Greek and Hebrew. They translated the Bible into 760 languages from the King James Bible. Truly, the modern missions movement was a King James-only movement. In the 1870s, a challenge arose in the English world to the primacy of the King James Bible. There had always been a challenge from Roman Catholicism, but this challenge came from men who were supposedly officially Protestants. The Church of England, Bishop Brooke Foss Westcott, and Cambridge University Professor Fenton John Anthony Hort, who were actually closet Catholics and open occultists, we talked about them last week, we're going to talk a little bit more about them today, the heart of the Westcott and Hort theory was that a New Testament was preserved in almost perfect condition in two Greek texts, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. The Sinaiticus was discovered in a waste basket in Saint Catherine's Monastery near Mount Sinai in 1844 by Constantine von Tischendorf. The Vaticanus was found in the Vatican Library in 1475 and was rediscovered in 1845. The King James New Testament was translated from a different family of Greek text. An uncorrupted family. To Westcott and Hort, the King James Bible was clearly an inferior translation to them. To two devils. It must be replaced by a new translation. From texts that they consider to be older and better. They supposedly believed that the true work of God in English had been held back by an inferior Bible. Oh yeah, and we can look back at all the awesome fruit of the King James Bible and say that it had been held back. That makes a lot of sense. What had been held back was the work of the devil. That's what had been held back. And because they were of their father the devil, Westcott and Hort, and of his works they will do, the King James Bible was an offense to them. They had to change it. They determined to replace the King James Bible and the Greek textus receptus. In short, their theory suggests... That for 1,500 years, the preserved Word of God was lost until it was rediscovered in the 19th century in a trash can at the base of Mount Sinai and in the Vatican Library. We didn't have it for 1,500 years. What did we do without it? Look at all the great fruit it's produced today. Hort clearly had a bias against the receptus. He called it villainous and vile. This is what Hort said about the King James. Villainous and vile. Hort aggressively taught that the school at Antioch associated with Luci- Lucian, 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 Lucian had loosely translated the true text of scripture in the 2nd century. This supposedly created an unreliable text of the scripture which became the textus receptus. This was called the Lucian recension theory. Port did not have a single historical reference to support this idea that such a re- recension took place. He simply theorized that it must have taken place in spite of the fact that there's not a single historical reference to the Lucian recension. Many Bible colleges teach it as a historical fact. Hey, they've got to do something to, to justify their position. And it's got to be based on lies because it can't be based on truth. It is clear that the modern movement to revise the English Bible is based completely on the works of Westcott and Hort. K.W. Clark writes, the Westcott and Hort text has become our." Our textus receptus. We have been freed from one only to become captivated by the other. That is sick. You're freed from the textus receptus, the underlying text of the King James, only to become captivated by this perverted Bible of Westcott and Hort? The physiological change so recently broken from our fathers have again been forged upon us, even more strongly. End of quote. That's a pretty sick statement. E.C. Caldwell writes, quote, though this is a nice quote, the dead hand of Fenton Anthony Hort lies heavily upon us. In the early years of this century, Kership Lake described Hort's work as a failure, but Hort did not fail to reach his major goal. He dethroned the Texas Receptus, which is the underlying text of the King James, He dethroned the Texas Receptus. This was a sensational achievement. An impressive success. Hort's success in this task and cogency of his tightly reasoned theory shaped and still shapes the thinking of those who approach the textual criticism of the New Testament through the English language. Oh, it does. It still shapes. It still influences in the cemeteries. I mean the seminaries. And the dead hand... Of Fenton, Anthony J. Hort does lie heavily upon them. I just kind of picture this big dead hand going over their shoulder. That is a really sick, another really sick, twisted, perverted statement there. From a supposed scholar. And he ends by saying, the thinking of those who approach the textual criticism of the New Testament through the English ages, in other words, Hort's work still shapes that. And it does. Why? Because they are desperate just like Satan was in the Garden of Eden to say, ask the question, yea, hath God said? Because they, they can be as gods then. that's what, That was the promise to Eve, right? You should be as gods and only good and evil. Well, they want to be as gods. And what, what better way to be a god than to say, I know what needs to stay in the Bible and I know what needs to go. I'm going to become a modern textual critic and I'm going to throw out whatever I don't like and put in whatever I do like. This is really a serious matter we're talking about. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. This is not something to be taken lightly, this, this study that we're doing. And it's going to get more serious as I move along. So they're all saying, Yea, if God said. And their father, the devil, is so proud of his, of his textual KJV critics. He's so proud of them. His, actually, it's not Hort's dead hand that's upon their shoulder. It's Satan's hand. That's who's upon their shoulder. Zane Hodges, a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, writes, "Modern textual criticism is psychologically addicted to Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort, in turn, were rationalists in their approach to the textual problem in the New Testament and employed techniques within which rationalism of every other kind of bias are free to operate. Psychologically addicted." Modern textual criticism is psychologically addicted to Westcott and Hort. These two high-level occultists, closet Catholics, they weren't even saved. They used two, two totally corrupt texts to transform, to, to uh, translate the revised version of 1881. We went over that last week. Because the people could say, well, yeah, but they were just two guys, and it ended with them. And it No, no, no. <laughs> no, it's carried on to today. It's carried on in the modern seminaries. That's why I started with them, because I wanted you to understand the foundation of what we're talking about here today. This whole thing with Westcott and Hort is alive and well today, and it's gotten worse. Alfred Martin, former vice president at Moody Bible Institute, wrote in 1951, The present generation of Bible students have been reared on Westcott and Hort. And have, for the most part, accepted this theory without independent or critical examination. Now, this is what the guy from former Vice President Moody Bible Institute, 1951. He, this was in 1951. Present generation of Bible students have been reared on Westcott and Hort. Not reared on the Bible. Not reared on the Word of God. No, they've been reared on Westcott and Hort. You understand why I'm so cautious about the seminaries? And these students have, for the most part, accepted this theory without independent and critical examination. Why would they do that? Because they're blindly believing whatever they're learning in the seminaries. They're not questioning. That's why they're so dangerous. If believing Bible students had evidence of both sides being put before them, which is what we're doing here today, instead of one side only, there would not be so much blind following of Westcott and Hort. The two most popular Greek manuscripts today, Nestle's Alan and the UBS, the United Bible Society, differ very little from the Westcott and Hort text. Well most likely because they were derived from it. So I'm gonna go ahead and end part one there and we'll get into part two next.